The Wall Street Journal reports that on average, Americans spend $1.2 trillion a year on non-essential items or materialistic things. Meanwhile, the Huffington Post reports that on average, every American throws away approximately 68 pounds of clothing per year. Which begs the question, is America a materialistic society? And do they value items more than they do building meaningful and sustainable relationships? For mental health advocate Mitch Hankins, the answer is a resounding yes. And he's determined to change the way we define the word success and view it overall. For Hankins, defining success in today's modern society is akin to eating the menu rather than the meal. Hankins believes that all too often in life we value material possessions rather than placing value on creating and building sustainable and long-lasting relationships which are meaningful. Hankin says, at the end of the day, we're all striving for a more meaningful life. We just don't know how to get started. Well, lucky for the rest of us, this week, Hankins joined me to give me the inside scoop on how to accomplish that very goal. I'm Kevin McShane. Let's have this conversation. Well, Mitch, if you're ready, I'll take a moment to welcome you to the program, my friend. And I'm uh, super delighted to be with you to talk all about mental health this afternoon. Great to see you and happy weekend, my friend. Happy weekend to you. It's great to be here. I'm finally or glad we're finally getting a chance to talk. As am I, my friend. And I know you turn hardships into fuel for happiness with all the great work that you do with mental health, my friend. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about all the great work that you do. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that life happens for you, not to you. You know, it's not life trying to do you one over, or it's not life trying to set you up for failure. It's all about how you interpret events in life and how you use them in the future. And that's not to say that not horrible and unfair things happen, but regardless of how we feel about them, they happen anyway. So we might as well try and not necessarily find the good in everything, but find a way to become a truer or a better version of ourselves. And the way I've done that is 
you know, having felt so unseen and unheard a lot of my life, having felt as though the emotions I was feeling, the things I was thinking were completely unique to me because nobody in my environment was acknowledging them in me or themselves. And that took a toll later on in life where I wasn't able to relate to people as well or interact with people as well, create the same meaningful relationships or intimate relationships. And then I started realizing the more books I started reading and the more information I started consuming and the more I started talking to people, I realized that I wasn't alone. And that's kind of the point where I realized that just having a normal job and just working for somebody else's company wasn't going to be enough for me. I thought I felt a certain kind of emptiness within me and I wanted to give meaning to my life. And that's when I thought, well, there was a large part of my life where I didn't feel acknowledged. I didn't feel seen because, you know, men in our society aren't talk, supposed to talk about our emotions. We're not supposed to be seen crying. We're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be the provider. And I started challenging that. And then I started seeing when I communicated that to other people, I started seeing their responses and I thought, well, I want to do something with that. And that's when I started uh, writing about it, you know, blogging. And I started a podcast and I started um, talking about it in public. And I think that's for me made a big difference in how I show up in life, how I feel about myself, as well as how the people around me behave. Yeah, absolutely. And connecting the dots to your last answer, Mitch, I'm curious to ask you about your definition and how you define emotional intelligence and inclusion for all. For me, emotional intelligence is starts with awareness, uh, right? Because a lot of the times we're eating junk food or we're smoking cigarettes or we're smoking weed or drinking alcohol or doing other drugs and we don't even know why. And the first part of emotional intelligence is knowing, I feel this feeling, I feel anger. And then being able to say, well, why do I feel anger? Why do I feel this emptiness? Why do I feel loneliness? That's the first step I think of emotional intelligence. You know, just like the traditional intelligence IQ is being able to look at a math problem and saying like, oh, you know, this is like um, an algebraic for formula or, oh, this is something I would need the quadratic formula for. It's all these different um, tools, a certain awareness you need to have to solve the problem. And it's the same with emotional intelligence. It starts with the awareness of what you're feeling and then the big part of it as well after that is the courage to not stuff it away because sometimes we do know what we're feeling but we don't really do anything useful with it we just kind of stuff it to a dark corner in our mind hoping it'll go away so the second part of emotional intelligence is really the courage to put whatever you're feeling to productive use and make something better out of it and that's i think a daily habit something that you don't just learn, but something that you work on and get a little better at each and every day. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about uh, daily habits, Mitch. You know, I'm a big believer in diversity of perspective, uh, diversity of perspective and inclusion for all my friends. You know, I was born with uh, cerebral palsy, and a lot of people call me an inspirational person, and I simply tell them that I live my life normalist and. You know, one of the big components of my life life is sort of valuing diversity of perspective. So in the lens of 
inclusion for all. How do you view a diversity of perspective? You know, you bring up a really good point there. And I, that's something I think I missed in my answer. Um, a really big part of emotional intelligence as well is empathy, um, is being able to understand different ways of thinking and not just embracing them, not just saying like, oh, there's people that think differently than I do, but understanding that the strength community, the strength of society isn't people that think the same way. It's people that are different. It, our strength, my mom always used to say, diversity is what gives society strength. So when there's people that have mental conditions or physical conditions, all of that combined only serves to strengthen society because it widens the amount that we see in life. And it allows us to kind of expand our, our mind. And just like when you travel, you know, if you're always living the same place and you always have the same views, it's not the same as when you travel and you get to talk to new people with different experiences. And when you try and embrace those, they really enrich your own life because it comes from a point of view it comes from somebody that's had certain struggles that you've never had, that you've never could have imagined. And that makes you a more empathetic person. That makes you a more rich person. Yeah, absolutely. And Mitch, you tell me that you are on a mission to sort of redefine the modern meaning of success in today's modern meaning of uh, a society. And you think success is all about eating the menu rather than the meal. So I'm wondering if you can tell me all about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, when I say modern success is akin to eating the menu rather than the meal, it's really misdirected focus. You know, we think having a fancy car will make us happy, or we think having a big house or a large paycheck or the hottest partner will make us happy. But all we're really doing is... We're trying to project an image of what we think other people are expecting of us. And that is never going to make us happy because just like in childhood, a lot of times we tried to make our parents happy and tried to project something that we thought they would approve of. We continue to do that as adults where we aren't true to what we truly want and what we truly desire and how we truly want to show up in the world. We're just trying to live up to this expectation of what society has of us, what, what has seen us successful. And deep down, nobody's happy with that. And it's the exact same thing as being very, very hungry and going to McDonald's and getting a hamburger. I mean, how do you feel after? You feel like trash versus if you feel hungry and you eat a healthy meal, how do you feel after that? You know, you're ready to go and exercise. You're ready to go and do fun stuff. It's a totally different way of nourishing your body. And it's the same with your mind. If you fill it with things that truly matter to you and that make you truly happy and that feel like they're in line with who you are as a person, you're going to have a much, you're going to have much more energy and much less stress. Yeah. And Mitch, one of the synergies that really align our, our mutual perspectives on life are, you know, I'm a big believer in the power of authentic human connections and really valuing relationships. And I know that's a big part of what you uh, do as well. And 
Emotional courage is also something that I'm uh, a big proponent of, but it's definitely about the importance of valuing authentic human connection. Yeah, you know, that really is, you know, it's another great question. I think that is really the antidote, right? So if, you know, trying to live up to society's expectations is really what's killing us on the inside, the solution is that of that is just to try and sit still and listen to what you want, you know, listen to your inner self and surround yourself with people that draw out the good in you. You know, you can be with people that just try and get you to do things that you don't really want to do or try to get you to conform to certain standards that make them feel safe, but that don't align with who you are as a person. Or you can surround yourself with people that inspire you. And a good way to maintain those friendships is by contributing to them. So if, you know, it's anything simple from somebody needs a ride to the airport all the way up to, you know, somebody's going through a difficult situation in life because they lost a friend or a parent and being there for them and willing to listen to their pain and having them open up to you, you know, it generates like this sense of, I am needed by these people. First of all, these people matter to me. They're not just people that fill up some like, um, you know, some urges just to be surrounded by people or people that actually inspire me when they're around. And second, I feel by them. I feel like I'm contributing. And that sense of community and belonging, I believe that's what makes us so happy because that's what we evolved to be happy with. You know, for millions of years, humans of beings lived in smaller group settings. And all we really did is interact with people and provide value and feel needed and we weren't so concerned with all the technology of the latest few decades. You know, that's really just very recent development. Our brain hasn't caught up with that. And yeah, it really lies in connections, like a sense of belonging, having community, feeling needed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Mitch, I'm curious to ask you about, about the correlation between a positive or successful self-improvement and how it's linked to... Uh, self-confidence and building that and how it's all related to our mental health. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think from my own experience as well as what I've seen in, in other people is that self-confidence, people tend to think in our society like, oh, I want to lose weight. I'll just swallow a pill. Like, oh, I want this. I'll just take some medicine. Courage and uh, self-confidence aren't things where you just go to bed, you flip a switch, and the next day you wake up with them. It's something that's built through tiny, tiny actions every single day. And sometimes you fail and sometimes you don't. But the way that, you know, habits and routines and all those things build your self-confidence is because they get you to trust yourself. It's just like when you get to know either a friend or maybe like a romantic partner you know, you start off and you don't really know much about them. There's just that chemistry. And then after a few weeks or a few months, you know, you start building trust. They do nice things for you to make you feel good about yourself. They help you work through certain issues. They're there for you when you need them. They motivate you. And all of a sudden, you know, they become this person that that is like a part of foundation of your life, someone that you really can't imagine being without. And it's similar when you have habits and routines, you start building that trust and belief in yourself. 
And instead of waking up in the morning and thinking like, oh gosh, I'm such a loser. I have to go do this. I have to go work for my boss. Like, I don't want to go to the gym. That is a lack of self-confidence. Like if you have habits around the morning routines about um, how you eat, about how you exercise, about, um, you know, maybe certain intellectual goals like reading or podcast listening, and you start building, you, you do these things on a daily basis or a weekly basis, you start trusting yourself. And when you start trusting yourself, you can show up with confidence because there's only really two kinds of confidence. There's epistemic confidence, which is making statements like this never happens. This is a fact, or this is such, you know, that's the kind of confidence that kind of rubs people the wrong way. Cause it's really just the confidence of, I know something to be certain, even though there's nothing in life to be certain about, or there's the confidence where you're certain about who you are as a person and what you're capable of. And habits and routines built that confidence about yourself because you keep proving to yourself over and over every single day that you've got what it takes to perform those habits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Amirta, I'm curious to ask you about, you know, I, I always believe that vulnerability can be a superpower specifically mm. for men. So yeah. tell me, how do you think vulnerability can act as a superpower? Um, well, the biggest reason I think it can really work as a superpower is that a lot of times it's not expected of men. Um, you know, I'm sure you know too, a lot of times when men are together, um, there's kind of like this culture around being strong or being like winning, something like that, something along those lines. And of course there's a place for that as well, but when it comes to vulnerability, um, People don't expect it. It's not something that happens every day. So what makes a super weapon a super weapon is usually that it's very unexpected. And that surprise element of it makes something way more effective because it makes the brain go, oh, this is unusual. I got to pay attention to this because our brains are used to paying attention to things that we didn't expect so that we have a higher chance of survival. So when you're vulnerable with other people and vulnerable, not necessarily being like, hey, here's the biggest secrets in my life. Vulnerable really just means letting down your guard and saying, this is me, who I am as a person. This is how I think. This is how I feel right now in this moment. And I'm not going to change that, that based on some sort of fear of how I will be perceived. And the reason it's a superpower is because it creates extremely strong relationships and friendships and trust. And that kind of trust that is built with vulnerability um, you know, it's just really a supercharged way to build it. There's no other way to get to get us connected to people as there is with vulnerability. There's no way to do it without. Yeah, absolutely. And Max, I, you know, I always challenge people people in my own line of work to sort of maximize their own sort of height of potential. And I always tell people that everyone's portrait of success is different. So I'm curious, what does that mean to you to live a meaningful life? Wow. You know, if you'd asked me that a few years ago, I would have said a meaningful life to me means being completely independent, not having to rely on anyone, including for work. So it means financial freedom, having enough passive income to where I don't have to worry about money. I can just travel the world and do my own thing. And now I would say meaningful life means one that is lived in service of others according to my true purpose. 
It means stepping into the person that I am meant to be, you know, the person I life has shaped me to be essentially. And feeling like I carried that purpose to the best of my ability every single day and that I made a positive impact on other people and that I surrounded myself with people that made me feel good about myself and that I had a community and that I felt loved. That would be meaningful for me. And yeah, and just building on that last answer, Mitch, I'm wondering your thoughts on what are uh, essential principles to living a championship lifestyle so for me the essential principles of a championship lifestyle is never back down and um when you when you get punched to the ground get back up the first one um or i would say really a lot of times we get punched down we don't we're too scared to get back up. We think, oh, we tried something. I started a business or I started this relationship and it failed or this or this or this happened. And we're too afraid that it might happen again and we don't get back up. But the truth is that success is really just a long series of failures that you've learned from. Like you're not going to succeed at anything in life just at your first go, you have to fill and get back up and fill and get back up. And every time you fill, and every time you get back up, you look, and you look at what you did right, what worked, and you look at what went wrong, and you learn from it, and you keep trying. And you adjust, like sometimes, you know, we get so obsessed with our goals. And we don't want to admit that we were wrong by setting them. And we're too afraid to change them. But it's also you know, being a champion is constantly revising your direction. Is, is this still where I want to go? Uh, you know, like with me for my financial freedom, like, is that still where I want to go? Or do I want to place more emphasis on my relationships because I'm just feeling lonely? And that's, you know, something that I really want to do. And the second part that's huge about um, the champion principles is is courage, right? It's never backing down. It's saying... For me, courage means the the willingness to act in spite of the presence of fear. Like a lot of people, you know, we see these movies, especially in America, with all these like badass actors that just don't seem to have any fear. That's not what courage is. Like if you do something while you're not afraid, you're not cool. You're not a badass. You're just doing something like the people that do something in spite of feeling fear are the people that are courageous. And that is someone who's a champion. A champion is able to say, I was scared out of my mind, but I didn't stop. I, I, I resisted the fear. I used this fuel, I used this energy and I kept going. Um, I think a lot of people, when they hear the word champion, they think of somebody that's reached a certain destination or won a fight. To me, a champion is a mindset. It's something you do every single day where you've never reached the destination. You just work on it every single day and you show up as that person every single day. You know, Mitch, I'm going to follow up by asking you by asking you what I call a connective tissue question to our conversation. It's a really basic question, but I, I believe that it, it gets to the heart of our conversation. Why do you think mental health awareness is, is so critically important? And why do people have to be vigilant when it comes to their mental health awareness? You know... I think um, 
I think we have to be vigilant because it's so easy to hide and so easy to pretend it's not there. But we see it everywhere in the world. We see the consequences. We have school shootings. We have diabetes. We have such a messed up food industry. You know, we have all these different evils showing up in the world, all because we're ignoring so much of mental health. And I know it's easy to do that because I did it for like the first 28 years of my life or something like that. It took me a therapist to figure out, you know, it was my therapist that told me like, hey, it doesn't sound like you're unhappy because you're not achieving your financial goals. It sounds like you're unhappy because you don't have a community because you're lonely. And I never even really considered that myself. Our society doesn't teach us to think that way. It doesn't encourage that. It should, it doesn't encourage in, in high school. It doesn't encourage through a lot of times through parenting or through other avenues like movies and all these different things. So we have to be vigilant about our mental health because we don't even realize how much it impacts the choices we make, how we treat people, how we treat our bodies. We have to be vigilant about it because it's a huge part of our existence and it influences every single thing we do every single day. Absolutely. And you inspired me to ask this question, you know, I mean, there are so many avenues to build physical strength, but I also think it's important to build mental and emotional strength. So when Absolutely. you look at building a mental and emotional sort of safeguard or strength, how, how does that look for you? And what are the, like, the core principles of building mental strength? So for me, mental strength is practiced on a daily basis. And it is, to me, it is far more important than physical strength because physical strength is going to decline at some point. You know, by the time you reach 50s, 60s, 70s, that is going to decline. But your brain is much more apt to change much farther in life. And they kind of go along together too. Like just like, you know, breaking down your body in order to make it stronger. It's the same with the mind. Like you have to challenge it on every single day. It's not a one time or a, a one pill fix. It's something that you work on every single day. So the way you increase your mental strength really varies every single person because the key to growing mental strength is being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And for me, doing certain things that feel uncomfortable might be totally comfortable for somebody else. You know, for me, going up to a stranger at a bar might be very uncomfortable versus for somebody else that might be very comfortable. And they might be doing something that's comfortable to them that's very uncomfortable to me or the other way around. So I think you have to find and ask yourself what is something that makes me uncomfortable, but that I really want to do? And then you take the absolute smallest step every single day to get there. So if you ask me, how do you build mental strength? Well, find ways to get uncomfortable, you know, not set necessarily ways to get uncomfortable. I mean, somebody can make an argument like, well, I would be uncomfortable running naked in the street. Well, I'm not saying go do that. I'm saying find things that get you excited and that push you slightly outside of your comfort zone because that's where you grow. And embrace that champion mindset and do the smallest step you can take every single day. You know, even if you want to end up rounding a mile a day, if you start running one mile around the block, that takes one or two minutes, fine, start with that. But do something very small every single day that makes you uncomfortable, whether it's physical exercise or something mental like puzzles or reading, just whatever challenges you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you, and I, I believe that we have the same synergy in this respect. You know, when you look at the world today, there are so many avenues of division, and one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is to create more avenues of, of what I call inclusive connective tissue. So when you look at society today and sort of bridging the gap of inclusion and shrinking the divine of division, how do you think we can uh, become a more inclusive and accepting society? Well, I, I love that question. Um, you know, that's it's one of the core tenets I was raised on. I, I mentioned my mom earlier. And um, so that's something that for me start with a very young age. My answer to that would be compassion, because when we have like, I think it was Abram Lincoln that said, I hate that man. I must know. I must get to know him better, which all he meant to say is I only hate that man because I don't understand him well enough. And again, it's the brain really just being lazy and saying like, oh, these people aren't like me. And so the brain isn't accustomed to that. So it creates fear and confusion. And the way you get through that is by getting to know people, by feeling compassion for them, by relating to them, understanding that we're all cut from the same cloth. And, you know, I think we talked earlier, Kevin, before the podcast started, we talked about how, um, how I came back from Mexico. That's one of the reasons I went. I wanted to go. I'd never been to Mexico before. And I know it's not a first world country like America is. And I wanted to walk around and I wanted to talk, talk Spanish with the natives. I wanted to see how they lived. I wanted to see what does a country that doesn't have all this commercialism and capitalism look like, a family, a country that's very family oriented. And I've come back with a whole new understanding and appreciation. You know, when you put yourself, I've lived in two countries, seven states, many different cities. When you really try and understand other people through compassion, it enriches your own personality and it creates that connective tissue. Like you said, it enriches everyone. Yeah. And, and you know, Mitch, one of uh, my core beliefs in life is really finding your championship injury inner center. And what I mean by that is when everything sort of collapses around you and you really have to reconnect with yourself, I think it's important. And I always ask whoever I interview how you celebrate your championship moments. So I'm going to ask you, how do you celebrate your championship moments as it relates to living your life to your maximum potential? And really overcoming adversity well the way i celebrate it is really with with other people um with people that means something that to me and that can be in the form of traveling or it can be you know just having good conversations i've really come to discover that for me no experiences in life are worth having if they're alone because everything is relative to other people um so the best way to celebrate things for me um, is really to be around people that make me feel good and about myself and people that inspire me. And um, I think a big part for me of celebration as well is doing some sort of shared activity. Um, like again, whether it's playing game nights together 
or having food together or rock climbing or hiking together. It can be anything. It's just about having a shared experience with people is for me by far the best way to celebrate. Yeah. And you know, Mitch, earlier I shared with you that I have cerebral palsy and mm -hmm. one of my uh, happy places is going swimming, buddy, because it, it's a way for me to always be active and sort of uh, unleashed from the weight of gravity, if that makes sense. And I know you yeah. live out there in California, and I know that you have a mutual passion for the water as well, my friend. So tell me, when you're not working and really getting philosophical, tell me, Tell me, what do you like to do for fun, and how big does the water play in your life as well? Uh, well, it's a very interesting question because to me, uh, I feel the exact same way about water. When I swim um, or surf, but just being in water, it's almost like to me being embraced by Mother Nature. It's like a very safe place. To and just as you've said, I feel like I'm in space or something like there's no gravity. It makes me feel um, it might sound a little silly, but like a child in a womb or something like where you return to this very safe space of just being and not having to move, just feeling surrounded by, um, yeah, by nature. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of science behind that, too, with like, um negative ions and where, you know, I don't know if you ever noticed it, but you go into the water with like a headache or something or like some certain pain and you come out and you feel great. You know, it's almost like the ocean just kind of, or water just kind of absorbs that and, and kind of, you know, you get out as like a better version of you. Um, so for fun, water plays a huge, huge part in my life. Um, and um, I do like a lot of physical activity just because it's a good way for me. I'm a very, I guess, kind of ADD hyper person. Um, so swimming, things like that are really a good way for me to calm down. But also by far, one of my biggest hobbies is is reading. Um, I love, absolutely love just, I can read all day. So um, I would say those are my 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 favorite ways to spend, uh, spend fun time. Yeah, I, I tell you, Mitch, there's a real power in uh, intellectual capital, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And Rich, my final question for you this afternoon has to do with your own personal and professional legacy and how you want that to be defined. So how I want that to be defined is that I really just want to be, to inspire people to step up to be, not necessarily the best version, but to to be, to embrace what they want to be and have the courage to do that. I it really pains me to see people that are minimizing themselves or that are telling themselves this or that is a stupid idea or, you know, because of a condition I have, whether it's mental or mental or physical, I can't do this or that. Um, like I really, and even if you succeed or not, isn't as important as just trying um, because we're all going to die one day. And do you want to lay in deathbed and think, oh, I wish I tried that and that or that? Or would you lay in your deathbed and say, hey, I tried that. I may have failed, but at least I tried it. You know, you're not going to regret that. And I just want to shake people up, shake people and wake them up and say, you know, do what you want to do. Like, you're not going to have all the time in the world to do it. Just start doing it. 
um, that's what I want my legacy to be. Yeah, absolutely. And Mitch, tell me if people want to get connected with you, buddy, what's the best way they can do that? Sure. Yeah. So they can go to my website, which is uh, thedebuglife.com. Uh, I post weekly blogs there about anything from mental health to um, mental, physical exercise to nutrition. And um, also in Instagram, they can find me as uh, the debug life as well. Fantastic. Well, Mitch, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed our weekend conversation all about mental health and how you're helping people really uh, maximize the fullest sides of their potential in your work and the space of mental health and time on my behalf is most appreciated. And I want to thank you for engaging in conversation with me this afternoon. It's most appreciated. Thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time as well.